For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. And Father, we thank you that you are the victor. The kingdom is yours. We belong to you. We're residents of your kingdom. And we thank you, Father, that the, the accuser has no power over us. And we thank you that ultimately he is cast down. And we know he's a defeated foe. And you are a glorious king. And we love you and we praise you. And I pray, Lord, that we would just bow before you, worship you, and praise you, honor you with every aspect of our lives. Every single moment, Father, belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning, family. What a delight to praise Jesus together, isn't it? The only thing is, after playing the trumpet, my lips are a little numb, so if I talk funny, that... <laughs> well, it's been a long time. I mean, uh, it's been 48 years since I've played, so I'm trying to get back into the groove here. But it's been a joy, I mean, to, to now um, play for the Lord's glory and for His honor. Family, we are continuing on in Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be studying verses 25 through 30. And today, a man named Barnabas. This is part two. We, we started uh, last week. We, we looked at the man named Barnabas, part one. And there's a lot to learn from this man. I mean, what an incredible servant of God. And there's some very, very wonderful attributes that we do find in him. But last time as we, we looked at Barnabas, we saw that as the church began to grow and prosper and move forward, the focus, recall, shifted from Jerusalem, which is where the church began, and it shifted northward about 300 miles to Antioch. And God was doing a wonderful work in that city. Verse 21 tells us this, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? And isn't that what we want? People coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, a true heart changes. And I'm not talking about, you know, religious exercise. I'm talking about heart changes. And we talked about heart changes last week when, when Barnabas, remember, he saw the grace. And he said, how can we see grace? Well, we see the grace of God as evidenced in the lives of those that God has saved. So as news of God's hand upon this ministry in Antioch reached the disciples in Jerusalem, remember they sent Barnabas to Antioch, hey, Barnabas, go check things out, verify that which is being done there is actually of the Holy Spirit. And what he found was exactly that. It was a work of God's Holy Spirit, and it was evidenced in verse 23. He said, saw the grace of God. Again, he saw that lives were changed. And we're told that Barnabas, he encouraged the people with, that with a purpose of heart, they would cleave to the Lord. And it's so important for each of us. As Barnabas encouraged them, we need to encourage one another with purpose of heart that we would cleave to the Lord. Show me a person with a purpose of heart that cleaves to the Lord, and you can be certain that that person has a strong walk with Jesus Christ. And of course, the opposite is also true. One that's not staying close to the Lord, their walk will be weakened. 
And I'm sure we've all gone through times in our Christian life where we felt weak spiritually. Well, what's the remedy for that? Well, cleave to the Lord with purpose of heart. Now, as we look at Barnabas once again, we're going to find another beautiful attribute of his. Let's look at verse 25 of Acts chapter 11. It says, Then Barnabas, or excuse me, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. You might be thinking, well, what's the big deal here? Well, I believe the big deal is this Barnabas was a very humble man, and in his humility, he was willing to admit his own limitations. He recognized there was someone with an even greater ability than he had within himself that could minister with him and to the people in Antioch. And of course, we're going to find out this is Saul. So Barnabas was able to take a look at someone, and this is really important for us too. We're going to expound on this a bit, but it's important as he looked at Saul, he, he saw him through God's eyes, and he gave him the benefit of the doubters. He had this ability, this wonderful ability to, to look and see and, and say, I, I see what man sees, but I also, more importantly, I see what God sees. And when you think about Barnabas, I'd say this, that he could probably have been the, the poster child for Philippians 2 verse 3 that says this, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. He said, let, let nothing be done through strife, which is selfish ambition. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that we're to do nothing to our advantage at the expense of another person. Whether it's by our intellect that God has given us, what, whatever that might be. You know, the, the gift of, of speech, perhaps, or persuasion, or purpose. We're not to use any of those things for our advantage to, to someone else's disadvantage, why? Because there's no holiness in that. That's the way of the world. It's not the way of the Lord. There's no place in that in the body of Christ. And you know, we see it all over the place, don't we, in society? People stepping all over each other. Walking all over one another. To do what? To not only put them down, but to elevate themselves. And the Scripture tells us we're not to do that. And you see, as the body of Christ... The scriptures tell us that we are all fitly joined together. I, I love that term, fitly joined together. Pieced together in a miraculous and glorious way for what purpose? To work in harmony and in unity, not against one another, not putting or pitting one member against another. We're never to do that. We're never to do that in order to advance ourselves. And here's why. Because our purpose not about ourselves, is it? No, our purpose is the purpose of Christ. To bring glory to him and bring others to him. Not to ourselves. We bring them to Jesus. Now, vainglory, what is this? Well, it's conceit. It, it means thinking too highly of oneself to attract attention or to win praise. In other words, it's self-promotion. And think about it, how, how great a sin this is because we should be about promoting the Lord Jesus Christ, shouldn't we? And when I think about the Holy Spirit of God, 
And here's a, a wonderful example. If God the Holy Spirit never pointed to himself, should we? No. Who did the Holy Spirit or does the Holy Spirit point to? Always, always, always points to Jesus. Always to Christ. But you know, we're, we, we deal with our flesh, don't we? Who is there who passes a single day without, in some respect, desiring to draw attention to ourselves or put ourselves on display? And let me say this. Who has ever stood behind a pulpit never desiring a pat on the back? And I can't imagine there would be any of us. I, I'm guilty of that. Pastor Ange, how about you? <laughs> Harry, yeah, all, all of us that share the Word of God. I mean, that's the flesh. And it's ugly. And the worst part is, after finishing a message, and you think, oh, that's, that was okay, but nobody said anything. I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying to do anything other than you just follow after the Lord. I don't need, I don't need those encouragements. I don't need compliments. I don't need pats on the back. Why? Because they get in the way. They get in the way. Who in conversation is always free from a desire to speak more and listen less? Some people can't stop talking about themselves with little regard for anybody else. Who does anything without a desire for recognition or some kind of applause? We can all say, well, listen, hey, I've never done that. But if we examine our hearts, we'll see that there's something inside of us. There is this hidden desire for what? To glory in ourselves. And I wonder if all the strife and vainglory was removed from our conduct, what would be left? We need more of Jesus, don't we? That, that he must increase. You know, John said this. He must, he must increase and I must decrease. That's Barnabas. Barnabas, a humble man, what did he do? Well, he looked for help. And look at his choice. Yes, as we read, it was Saul. Barnabas went to Tarsus to seek Saul, and he brought him to Antioch. Now remember back in Acts chapter 9, after Saul's conversion, you know, the road to Damascus, the Lord saved him, brought him to the place of humility and desire to serve, and he went to Jerusalem, and and he went to join the brethren there. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27 says, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was the disciple. They were afraid. Why? Because he had a reputation, and it wasn't a good reputation. He had a reputation for desiring to crush Christianity as a hater of Christians, as a hater of Jesus, and wanted to put Christians to death and, and under arrest. His reputation preceded him. And they couldn't really see or didn't want to see that God was 
doing something in this man, and they didn't see what God saw in Saul. But because of Barnabas, the very next verse says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, speaking of Saul, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas stood up for him. Barnabas saw something that the other disciples didn't see. And when he began to share with them, they were no longer afraid. They welcomed him, received him into fellowship. You know, I think of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. It says this. Therefore, from now on, I like that. It puts a stake in the ground, doesn't it? From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. You see, before coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we looked at people differently. We sized them up. We examined them. We looked at their lives. We looked at maybe their social status, their, their income, what kind of home they live in, what kind of car they drive, their appearance. Well, I'm thankful God doesn't look at the outward appearance, aren't you? God looks at the heart. And then when God sees something in the heart that doesn't belong, he challenges it. He, he convicts us, doesn't he? And it's a wonderful thing in order to bring us to that place of conformance into the image of Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us here we're not to regard people like that anymore. We regard them in a whole different way now that we're Christians. We're now or should view people in one of two ways. Either they're saved, they belong to the Lord, or they don't. That makes life very easy. To look at a person according to the flesh means not looking at them as Jesus does. And for the saved, God looks at us how? Well, how does he see us, family? He sees us as, as redeemed, doesn't he? He, seems, he sees us as washed. He sees us as purified, cleansed sanctified, justified, holy, spotless. That's how God sees us. How do we look at, upon people who are saved? Do we see them in the same way through the eyes of Jesus? Again, redeemed, washed, cleansed, sanctified, justified, pure, holy, and spotless. Do we look at one another that way? Or do we rather overlook the new creation that he or she is and look for faults? Yikes. Are we fault finders? If so, then we're not seeing others as Jesus does. We're to look upon one another as forgiven family, aren't we? In all of our faults, in all of our messes, we are forgiven. And when we look at others like Jesus looks at us. It changes our perspective of people, doesn't it? But, you know, if we look at others as a fault finder, we, what do we do? We, well, we, we tend to nitpick, don't we? Does anybody ever do that but me? <laughs> we tend to be critical. We tend to be intolerant. What I can tolerate in me, I may not tolerate in you. We can tend to be intolerant. We can tend to be without grace, we can tend to be without mercy. And God gives mercy every single day. 
And every little flaw in that person, what happens? It's like looking at it under a magnifying glass. And that's the way the Pharisees looked at others. But the question is, do, do any of those things describe you? Well, there's a challenge. And I'm guilty of every single one of them. But the challenge is, what do I do with it? Say, Lord, give me your eyes and give me your heart and forgive me for this heart that's deceitful and desperately wicked, and you know it. If we look at one another as, as forgiven, as a family that's forgiven, we begin to look at others in a whole different way, a whole new way. And this is what Barnabas was doing. We, we begin to make allowances for one another, not excuses. We make allowances for one another, and we develop a forgiving spirit. And it's so important and necessary that we have a forgiving spirit. Why? Jesus has forgiven me. Who am I not to forgive? But when we look at others through the way Jesus looks, what do we do? We, we show people grace. We show them mercy, and, and we realize, well, listen, they're, they're just as imperfect as me, subject to mistakes, subject to messing up. And then what do we do with it? Well, we don't look down our noses, do we? No, or we pray. God, you see it much clearer than I do. In fact, I don't even want to see it. It's yours to deal with. So pray. And again, as I realize how much I've been forgiven by God, who is under no obligation to forgive me or you, yet he did it anyway, didn't he? And when I take, can look at upon others as part of this forgiven family, what happens is, and I think we need to practice this, the, the critical spirit disappears and it does something else, too, as the critical spirit disappears and I begin to look at others as Jesus looks at others, I begin to feel free to love as Jesus loves. And it's a beautiful thing. Paul also mentions that before he was saved, he said, he said you and I had a very worldly view of Jesus, but now we have a completely different view of him. And this is true, isn't it? He said, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know, know him thus no longer. You see, the world's view of Jesus, apart from Christ, they'll say, well, yeah, okay. There's something different about him. Yeah, he was a good man. Pretty good prophet. Heard that he died for sins, but had to be the sins of everybody else because I haven't sinned. That's the world's way of looking at it. Many in the world accuse Jesus of being just a myth or a phony. But what Paul is saying is now that we know him, we realize who he is and what he has done and why he did it. Jesus, God's only son, dispatched from heaven. Think about it, a place of absolute perfection, holiness, beauty, praise, unending God says, I want you to go down to earth and live among the men and women, live among the sinners, and then I want you to lay your life down on a cross for them. No matter what they do to you, I want you to lay your life down on a cross for them. So he knew why he came. He knew that he would be among the majority of people that despised him 
And he also knew that 33 years after coming to this earth, he would die a brutal death, a horrible death at the hands of those he created, those that he loved so much, and his love never changed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those that he breathed life into took his life. Life on earth, death on a cross. But even in full view of all of that, Jesus still loved them. You see, if he didn't still love them, he wouldn't be God, would he? Because God is love. His love never changes. He loved the ones that put him to death. And we know there was a purpose for that. The blood sacrifice was required by God to cleanse even those that were pounding the nails into, into his hands and his feet. Imagine that kind of love. Your greater love has no man than this, than one that would lay down his life for his friends. And yet, when I look at my sin, I look at my life, it's my sin that nailed him there and put him there on the cross. And we understand and we do believe that he's no longer on the cross. Praise God for that. He's no longer in the grave. He's risen from the dead. And that's why we understand and therefore don't look at Jesus like we once did. We look at him as our, my Savior, my Redeemer, the lover of my soul, the giver of life. The one who just poured his life out for me. Man sought to slay him, didn't they? And get rid of him once and for all. But of course, the death of Jesus was part of God's plan to redeem me and you and rescue us from sin. One time only. A one time only sacrifice. Pure, holy, innocent. The innocent one and through simple faith those who believed or believe are saved. The saved no longer look at Jesus like we did once before. We see him so differently. We see him through different eyes. And we're to see each other through different eyes too. Two kinds of people in the world. The saved and the unsaved. And you know the unfortunate thing at least for me, sometimes I expect the unsaved to behave like the saved. Do you ever do that? And they can't. They cannot. Why? Because they have not been regenerated. They don't have a new heart. They don't understand forgiveness. They don't understand love. They don't understand salvation. And yet sometimes I say, how could you possibly think that or do that? I can't look at them that way anymore. I need to look at them with different eyes, that they need Jesus Christ. And I know what it's like to be saved. I know what it's like to be not saved. And I'm so grateful. I'll take a saved day any day, any day over a day when I didn't know Jesus Christ. Paul said, I see Jesus like that no more. And Barnabas, unlike the others, they looked at Saul as a, he looked at Saul as a part of the forgiven family. He saw, he saw Saul as Jesus did. He stood up for him. And he realized that Saul would make an incredible partner in a ministry. And Barnabas could have said, I can go on ministering here in Antioch. I'm doing fine just the way I am without anybody interfering with me. But no, he did not do that. He said, I, I would do better to fade out a little bit and get a more capable man in here to stand with me and to minister, esteeming others greater than himself. So what did he do? 
off to Tarsus. That's where he went. Wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall when Barnabas approached Saul? It's not really clear in the scriptures exactly what Saul was doing up to this point. We don't read of any work that he was presently involved in. But verse 26 says this, and when he had found him, when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him unto Antioch. And maybe, maybe Saul was sitting at home thinking, well, now that I'm saved, what's next? And then a knock on the door. And Barnabas said, Saul, I've come to take you to Antioch to help the church there. Well, why? What, what do you need me there for? Well, there's a great opportunity there, Saul, and, and I believe you're the man that God has chosen because God has put you on my heart. So you come with me. Come with me to Antioch. And when Barnabas had found him, he brought him there. And I like that he brought him there. And it's a suggestion there to me too, and that is this, that maybe Paul or Saul wasn't quite ready to go. But what did Barnabas do? He encouraged him. Barnabas, the encourager. Saul, there's work to be done in the city of Antioch, and I'd like you to join me. I'd like you to partner with me. I know you'd be a blessing to the people. So Paul went with Barnabas. And it came to pass, verse 26 says, that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, and they taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Brings up a question. Who and what is a Christian? And, and let's face it, often this term is used very loosely, isn't it? In our nation, there's like 80% of the population call themselves Christians. And there are millions and millions of Americans that are not Christians among whom are churchgoers. Oh, what is a Christian? Well, the disciples received the word of God in their hearts. They received the gospel and were born again through the power of Christ. They were Christians because they belonged to Jesus through faith and received the gift of eternal life through him. And as Christians, we are Christ's representatives. And what an incredible privilege this is to represent Christ in this world but how do we represent Christ in this world? Do we represent Christ as Christ would choose to be represented? Or is there something less than that? Well, if there's a, if there's a gap in there, what a great opportunity. to Say, Lord, there's a gap in this. I'm not representing you like I should, but I want to. Would you help me? Would you strengthen me? And what would he say? Absolutely. Forsake your ways. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what he would say. So we're to endeavor to live out the life of Christ for others to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And listen, family, aren't you thankful that when you got saved, God just didn't shove you in a box and turn the lights out? Here's what he did. It says God would, and that's in the King James, which means he willed to make known the riches of this mystery. Well, what's this mystery? 
the mystery spoken of here is Christ in you. Not only is it a mystery, it's an incredible thing to realize that, that Christ dwells in me. That I am, as the scriptures tell me, I am a temple of God's Holy Spirit. But this was a mystery in the Old Testament. How, how could Gentiles possibly have a relationship with God? And how Jesus would dwell in Gentiles, it was just unknown. And when, when Paul speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory, he's referring to the certainty of the future that we have. And for you and I, it means if we're saved, we have a joy-filled and confident expectation of salvation. It ought to bring us joy with that knowledge. John the Apostle said this in 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He said, I want you to know. I want you to know without any doubt whether you belong to Jesus or not, whether you're saved. And isn't it a great thing that we can know? There's some that say, well, that's presumption. Well, that's not presumption. Here's what the Scriptures say. We can know because he wants us to know. And when Paul speaks, he uses the phrase, the hope of glory. And, and by using the word glory, what's he saying? He's saying that the riches of heaven, the place where you will go in the certainty of heaven, it's a glorious place. I think of 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. What a great verse that is, isn't it? In other words, we can't imagine what he has laid up for us. But I can guarantee you this, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be without regret. And it's going to be joyous. So because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory in this thing called life, and, and it's a race, right? What God is saying here is, listen, there's a finish line. And because you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, you can see that finish line. And because you and I can see that finish line, what does that do? It encourages, doesn't it, to keep on running. To run the race as Paul had described. Now, can you imagine a runner in a competition in a race having no idea where the finish line was? Just keep going and going and going. Hope I get there. Hope I get there. Hope I get there. It would be discouraging. It would be confusing. It would be exhausting. And ultimately, what would happen? I'm done. I'm just going to drop out of this race because I have no idea where I am. Unsure of the finish. And you know, and that's the way many people live their lives, as if there's no finish line. And they kind of drop out of the spiritual race. But we know there's a heaven. We know, family, there's a finish line. And we know how that finish line was brought near and into view. How? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. We know there's a finish line and we know who put it there. And praise God. You know, along the route, along this race that we're in, we have something so precious and so beautiful. We have the power of God's Holy Spirit giving us the strength to press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to do it by yourself. You know, picture yourself in a, in, a, in, a, in a marathon and the Holy Spirit of God giving you water along the way, right? You know, you see people running these races and people are throwing water and giving water bottles. No, no, you got the Holy Spirit of God 
giving you living water along the way, giving you strength and encouragement to forsake sin and to run the race that God has called you to do and to run in. And he says, you're going to win. We're all going to win because we know the finish line and we know how to get there and we know who put it there. It's in full view. And it's been made visible or viewable because of the mystery of Christ in you that has been revealed and it is the hope of glory. And of course, this knowledge, what does it do for us? It, It affects great change in our life, doesn't it? Because we know, we know, we know, we know where we're going and we can have joy along the way. You know, Paul the Apostle in in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, he he speaks of a surrendered life, which is the kind of life that we're called to live too. And he said this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't say I live my life in the faith of the Son of God, but by the faith of the Son of God. His faith. His faith. It carries us through. And Paul knew. You know, he knew that the cross of Christ was not in vain. It had purpose. Not just putting a man to death, for Paul knew that that cross, that death, that resurrection from the cold grave meant life to him. And and Jesus Christ's resurrection means life to us. And when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, we, we say, yeah, that was, it was awful. It was gruesome. It was brutal, horrible, painful, and brought a slow and agonizing death. But to Paul and to those of us that believe, the, the crucifixion of Jesus has done what? It's, it's brought us life. And we can say, because Christ was crucified, and I am crucified with him, we can say goodbye to the old man, the old me, the old you, and hello to the new creation in Jesus Christ. And that is Christ is a new, in Christ we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. He said, behold, all things have become new. We are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live as I enter into a relationship with him. So this new life in and with Christ is the same life that Jesus spoke of to the religious leader Nicodemus. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, with that command, you must be born again, it also has an implication that there must be a death also because we can't live two lives. Some people try to live two lives, right? I got my church life, and I got my private life. Every day is a day with Jesus. Every day is an opportunity to to bring forth his love and to be able to look at others like he does and to bring the gospel to them, sometimes even using words. Every day, every day with Jesus. Well, God's merciful. The brutal and gruesome death that Jesus experienced on Calvary through the crucifixion. You know, when I look at Christ on the cross, I, that, that should be me. I, I deserve that. That should be me. 
but I've been spared. And when Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, it's not the same crucifixion that Jesus had. It's, it's different. Jesus died once for all. And his death on the cross embodied within it the just payment for my sin and our sin. Our crucifixion is a different method, but the result's the same. Why? Because death occurs. But with our death comes the same invitation that Jesus extended to Paul on a Damascus road. Just inviting him. Listen, Saul, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. And I want you to enter into a relationship with me. Our death and crucifixion is not death in the flesh, but death to self-will. Death to self-rule. Death to self period. And with that, God says, okay, I'm going to be a brand new heart. I'm going to give you the ability to see things as I see. I'm going to give you the ability to love as I love. So the crucifixion, our crucifixion with Christ, as Paul said, is, is life-giving. It's not life-taking, is it? And listen, there's no greater testimony to the power of the gospel than that, that new life that we have. It happened with Saul, the new life. Barnabas saw what took place in Saul's life. And he knew that Saul would be of value in the ministry. Why? He saw that the Spirit of God gave life to this man. As God has given life to us, a new life, a fresh start, a new, a new heart, a different outlook. Now, isn't your outlook different now than it was before you knew Jesus? Our outlook is more of an uplook, isn't it? And this is what happened with Saul, who became Paul. This is what happened to Barnabas, and Barnabas encouraged him. What a great testimony. Now, in the remaining verses of this chapter... We have an illustration, a beautiful illustration of Christian love in action. And this is what Saul or Paul witnessed in Antioch. Let's look at verses 27 through 30. It says, And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. A famine. He said there's going to be a famine. And you know the, the proof of a prophet, a true prophet, the prophecy comes true. They're not a false prophet. Agabus was a true prophet. And God's Holy Spirit gave him a word. There is going to be a famine throughout all the world that came to pass. But then something beautiful happened. You know, this prophet came up to Antioch from Jerusalem. He said, I've got a word. God gave me a word. He told the people, and it says, then the disciples, these are those in Antioch, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and of Saul. 
these Gentile brethren converted to Christ in Antioch, they heard of a need, didn't they? They heard of the distress of their Christian brethren in Judea, and they said, we want to help them. Now notice here that no one begged them to help. No one pleaded with them. No one coerced them. They were not urged. They knew that the brethren in Judea were in need, and they gladly helped. Well, what is it that, that started them to think beyond themselves? Well, Romans 5, verse 5 says, And in hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. What was it that motivated them? What was it that moved them to say, well, they need help, I'm going to help? It was the love of Christ. It was the love of Christ. And this is the first time in church history where the people, where people began putting their money together to send relief and to help. I mean, you know, earlier in Acts it says they shared everything, right? And that's a good thing, but here they're, they're sending it out. And that's what Christians do. And there's numerous ways to help others. You know that. Jesus teaches us it's better to give than to receive. And the Scriptures also say that God loves a cheerful giver. But here in Acts, it tells us that every man gave according to his ability. Every man, you know, and that ought to include us. You know, as, as those of us that have the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts, that ought to be us. I mean, we need to be outward looking. But sometimes, at least for me, I, I look so closely into my own life that I get selfish. But you know, everything that we have, it's from God. And it belongs to him. And you know, I have to say that this is a wonderfully giving church. A wonderfully giving body. You know, we have an offering box in the back. Since God started this church, we've never asked for a nickel. Why? It's God's work. It's God's business. And God puts it on your heart. And he can do it a whole lot better than I can. Because he's the one that affected a change in our hearts, didn't he? And you know, of the, the offerings that, that, that God has provided here, you know, through all of you, you know, we, we support ministries, many of them. And last year, I was just going through some of the records. It was like $10,000 went out to help others. And it's a beautiful thing. Would we like to do more? Sure. As God provides, as God directs, absolutely. It, it's a wonderful thing to see God's work. And you know, a few weeks ago when we talked about Tabitha, what did Tabitha do? Use the gifts God gave her to be a blessing to others. And let me say this. There's a lot of Tabithas in here, men and women. Don't be offended, guys. But it's the principle. 
And whenever I use the name Tabitha, whenever I, I, I use that name, it has a very special connotation to me because it means that's a giving person, a person that loves to give. And this is what happened in the early church. Well, we talked about a, a lot of things this morning. I'm going to wrap up here. We talked about Barnabas. You know, what an incredible man of God and how God used him so powerfully. Barnabas, we see his humility and he saw his own limitations and he did something about it. You know, sometimes, you know, I can look at my own limitations and do nothing about it. But Barnabas saw his limitations and he said, I know God wants to do something greater here. God put Saul in his heart. Go get him. Bring him Bring him up here to Antioch, and I'm going to use him. And boy, I'll tell you what, did God use that man? <laughs> he sure did. From Antioch, three missionary journeys originated around the then known world. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. Two-thirds of the New Testament, written by Paul, and I can't help but think that when Barnabas approached him, it was a spark in, in Saul's heart, in Paul's heart that motivated him and moved him. So I'm going to surrender this life to Jesus Christ. Because my life is not my own. I am bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify God in my body and in my spirit, which are his I can't help but think that God used Barnabas in that way. Barnabas also had, had a desire, and what a wonderful desire it is to, to see others as Jesus sees them. And that, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? It doesn't come that easy sometimes. Sometimes it never comes easy. But the question is, will you? I wasn't going to say do you, but that, none of us do. No offense to anybody. We don't always look at everybody through Christ's eyes, do we? I can't say I do that all the time. But the challenge is, will I? Will I take that scripture verse and, and ask God to write it upon my heart so that when, when I sense a, a critical spirit coming up in my heart, Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me see like you see. When I want to nitpick somebody for what something they did that I don't really care about or care for, well, I say, God, help me. Help me to see that person like you see that person. And I think if we can get ourselves into that pattern of, of recognizing what we're doing in, in, our, in our vision toward others, I think it'll really help us. Don't you think that? Don't you think it'll help us focus in and zero in and to recalibrate our hearts so that what others see is the beauty and the abundance of the love of Christ just pouring out of us? I think, I think we need that. Keep in mind, family, that we have a finish line. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when life's 
life gets complicated, when, when life gets difficult, and it does, let, let's face it, life can be hard, can't it? Yeah. There's ruts along the road, there's bumps in the race, but you know, when, when Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says, keep your eyes, keep your eyes on the finish line, because I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. And I'm going to splash living water on you along the way. I'll give you plenty to eat. I'll give you plenty to drink. I've given you my word. I've given you my spirit. So keep your eyes on, on the finish line. Keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And when I think about Paul, what was it that motivated him to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going? And here's a man that was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. When he was stoned and left for dead, what did he do? Next day, he got right back up and went to serve. Why? Because he saw the finish line. It moved him and motivated him to keep on going because my life is not my own. It belongs to Jesus, and I'm going to live for Jesus, and this is what Jesus would have me to do. Family, there is there's hope in the gospel. There's hope of heaven. There is hope in the glory of God. Run the race. Run the race toward the finish line. I don't want to run the world's rat race. I want to run the race that counts. That's the greater race that we have. Paul would say, run so that you may obtain. Can we do that? Can we do that? And last, every man gave according to his ability. Why? Because of the love of God. And I'm not asking for anything. All I'm saying is we have a God that gave his best. He gave everything that he could give in order for you and I to be saved, to be forgiven. And that's the greatest gift of all. Talk about a giver. And you know, God doesn't run out of his gifts, does he? No. no every single day, we can wake up and say, thank you, Lord, you gave me breath. Thank you, Lord, you gave me mercy this morning. Thank you for the grace you poured into my life. I don't deserve any of this, but God, you've showered me with such beauties, with such goodness, because you are who you are, and you are a giving God, and every good and perfect gift comes from you. God, you've given me a home. I have a car. I can stand. I can sit. I can breathe. My heart's beating. My brain's working. God, you're a provider. And you've given me much, much, much more than I deserve. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. So with that, you know, when a, when a gift is extended, a gift is to be received, right? If someone gives you a gift, you, you receive it. And the gift of eternal life is, is really no different. God extends the gift to every single person, and yet, sadly... Many say, not me, not for me, or not now. You know, when we get a little further into the book of Acts, we'll see the account of, I think it's King Agrippa, when Paul went to share with him. and He said, I almost became a Christian. It's like, oh, those are hard words, aren't they? Yeah. I almost became a Christian. 
And there's a lot of people in this world that have seemed have, to have come so close, yet are so far. They heard the word. The Spirit of God began to stir their hearts. And they said, nah, I got, I got too much to give up. I've shared this with you before. Several years ago, there was a, a man rode up to the front door here at the church on a bicycle. He had uh, a little backpack or something with a few things in it. He had the clothes on his back. He had a bicycle. He knocked on the door and he said, he said, can you give me some money? I said, no, I can't give you any money. Are you hungry? I can, I'll take you right up here and get you something to eat. No, I need, I need the money. I said, well, I can't do that. And I shared the gospel with him. And I said, listen, there's a greater need that you have. And that is your eternity. I don't know if you've considered that or not, but you, you need to consider your eternity. Have you come to Christ? No. You believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe that he died for your sin and wants to save you? I believe he died for my sin. Would you like to receive Christ into your heart? He wants to give you a brand new life. He said, no. I said, why? They have too much to give up. What did he have? A backpack? A bicycle? The clothing on his back? And wanted money. I have too much to give up. That's one of the saddest things I've ever heard. But you know, it's, it's equally sad when, when you, you bring the good news to someone and they just say, no. I've had opportunities in the hospital to share with people. Nodding their head in agreement, nodding their head in agreement, nodding their head in agreement, and then, would you like to receive Christ? No. And by the way, don't talk to me about that again. That's sad. And my prayer is that that no one here or even listening later would say no to Jesus because he has so much, so much beauty, so much waiting just to, to, to hand to you. And he's just saying, I want to give this to you. I want to give you the promise. I want to give you hope. I want to give you peace. I want to give you comfort. I want to give you strength. Will you take it? I want to give you encouragement. People say no. Don't say no to Jesus. Don't. Please, by the grace of God, don't say no to Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? And Father, I thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. And today I realize that I don't want to say no to Jesus anymore. I want to say yes. So I come into agreement with you, God, that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I ask that my sin would be washed away, and I trust that Jesus, when you died on the cross and poured out your blood, you did it in order to cleanse me of all of my sin. Jesus, please cleanse me and forgive me. And I thank you for loving me and loving me to this very moment in time where you've given me now this opportunity for a new life.
I believe that you are the Son of God that laid his life down on a cross and died for me. I believe that you, you were buried in a tomb and you rose on the third day. And here today, I'm face to face with you, the risen Christ, who loves me and died for me. And you have saved me. And I praise you. And I thank you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.